You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Good evening and welcome. Right, so on the line we have Nick Kunze, the portfolio manager at Sunlam Private Wealth. Good evening to you, Nick. Morning. Morning. Good evening. <laughs> morning. We have spoken in the morning. Given the given the day that it's been, I would probably say good morning. It's so sleepy at the moment. Yeah. Um, and also joining us, we have uh, Devon Schutter uh, from. He's the head of investments at uh, the Robert Group. Good evening to you, Devon. Hi, Pietri. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for for joining us this evening, guys. So we're gonna do. Well, we got we got about twenty minutes to talk markets. Uh, relatively okay today. Top forty index up around a third of a percent. Uh, industrials doing all right. Industrials up seven tenths of one percent. Resources down around one third of a percent. Uh, retailers also. Uh, putting in some green solidly up 2%. They've actually been outperforming the rest of the, the market for the last couple of days. Uh, and then now the new, indi- the precious metals and mining index, uh, it's done away with the old gold mining uh, index, is down 1.2%. So a bit of a mixed bag, commodities coming under pressure, the rest of the stuff doing relatively okay. Um, so I, I guess let's start, with, uh, let's start with Nick. I mean, what, uh, what, what, are, what are your key takeaways from today? Well, not a great deal, really. I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, four-day week for us in South Africa. Um, it's obviously uh, the Europeans are going mad watching the, the football at the moment and heading into their European summer. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of kids on holiday here as well in South Africa too. So very thin markets. But for me, the takeaway is a little bit of, I guess, a bit of a holding pattern ahead of the, the Federal Reserve, the, the Open Market Committee, uh, sit down tomorrow for their two-day meeting. So we'll be on a holiday, but uh, it's around about 8 o'clock, 8.30 tomorrow on uh, Wednesday night. We'll know about the interest rate decision, which is expected to be no change. But I think more and more as the, the days and the weeks progress, we're starting to try to figure out when, you know, the big when these central banks, in particular the Fed, decide to, to sort of slowly exit this massive, you know, decade-long quantitative easing and all the rest. So for me, it's a bit of a holding pattern now, uh, Petri, until we, I guess, try to figure that one out. That's going to be the, that's going to be the, that's going to be the, the, the game changer for the next uh, six to 12 months when we start to get more indications out of that. Yeah, I saw some... Um some expectations, I guess, if you will, around what the Fed, the Fed's moves are going to be, uh, you know, with regards to interest rates and all that kind of thing. And that seems as though the majority of analysts uh, that were, were surveyed by Bloomberg, you know, this is obviously a group of people that, unfortunately, I don't know who they are, but uh, the majority of them, 33% of them think that we start seeing tapering of the bond buying programs come September. The other, another 33% think December, and the rest of them are kind of split all over the place. So consensus is either September or December for a taper. I don't know, Devin, do you think that's sort of broadly in line or? Look, I mean, the Fed, as, as Nick said, is is the biggest story at the moment. Everyone watching the, the language that's going to come out of the, the meeting on, on Wednesday. Um, and, and just if we're even getting a, a hint that they're even thinking about cutting back those, that bond buying program. So... I'm not sure. I mean, they do have to start unwinding at some stage. And, you know, based on where we're seeing unemployment in the U.S. going, where we're seeing growth going, uh, where we're seeing possible inflation going, it could make sense. But I think they're in a very difficult corner having to manage those expectations for when they do start to taper. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's entirely possible the second half of this this year we start to get um, clearer indication. But... Yeah, in my mind, it's probably a little bit too early to put your your colours on that mark. Yeah, I think I sort of agree with you on that. I think that, 
you know, there's a lot of talk of um, transitory inflation, <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't quite know. Everyone's saying, well, it's just used cars and flight tickets that are really, you know, rocketing in price, and home prices and everything in the in the grocery store. But it's transitory, right? It's not, it's not going to be around forever. And this is a debate I think that uh, a lot of us are really trying to get our head around because. As we know, inflation expectations and interest rates are, uh, you know, linked. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm a bit afraid of what happens when the U.S. starts to hike. Uh, Nick, I don't know if you have a, a sort of a view on this. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of unshamely in the inflation camp, um, only, only because, you know, we sort of, sort of more of a trading hat on, I guess, the more of a, they're more an economist hat and uh, you know I watch these prices on my screen every day and I've, I watch the things like soft commodities and soya and uh, back here in South Africa white maize and I can, you can talk about corn and soy I can even even throw in Petri do you know they even trade glass futures wow. on the daily exchange and uh, the price of glass futures are up 60% year to date as China has expanded into skyscrapers and the like so everywhere you look there seems to be a demand from silicone chips to to uh, soya, to soft, to and then, and of course, no one's even you know, no even speaking about oil. It's seventy two dollars a barrel. Mm-hmm. You know, your 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 biggest components of inflation market. I mean, oil at seventy two is not it's not a great story for emerging markets. Yeah, that starts to get too. We're lucky because we've sort of been, I guess, um, helped out a little bit by the stronger end. Um, but I mean, a weaker rand than oil at seventy two to seventy five dollars. It's not a you know. All of a sudden, you got a little amber lights flashing. So I'm I'm very much in their camp that I don't think this is transitory. I'd like it to be. It's a good story if it is. But I battle to see that when I when I sort of try marry up what I'm seeing in the commodity space, um, supply chains, disruption, the cost of moving goods. I mean the Baltic dry index up three hundred percent from its lows. Even and, um, and, and yeah. yeah, even sort of shipping prices to China, container exactly. prices are mm. at record highs. So I, I battle that. So I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm shaming in, in the inflation camp, but uh, I, I wish I could be proved wrong. I'll actually be proved wrong. Look, I agree with you, I'll be honest. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Devin, maybe a, a, an opposing opinion? It's not compulsory. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I mean, I, I'm of, of the view that this is transitory. I think that there, there may be a lot of base effects coming into play. I think the elevated commodity complex prices will have to move higher from here to, to keep those inflation levels sustainable. I think also if you bring the, the lens to South Africa, I think what you're seeing in terms of price increases is not driven by demand at all. The economy is still looking very anemic. It's really just those in, imported and administered prices, which hurt, but won't necessarily um, you know make make this inflation level as as structural as as it may be should there be demand. The US is a different story and maybe a little bit harder to pick. Um but you know if if you look at what bond markets are doing at the moment and pricing it rightly or wrongly, um market is very much looking at this as transitory. I think although we had that um inflation print come out last week that could have scared the market. The the market actually took it in stride so so I'm inclined to be on that side of the camp and, and go for transitory. 
Okay, yeah, I guess time will tell, hey, because there are some one-offs that don't make sense. Um, you know, just to play devil's advocate, I mean, used car prices are rocketing in the U.S., uh, and that could be driven by a number of things, you know, a lot of people working from home, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, there's a weird situation happening in the U.S. There's lots of job openings, but nobody wants to get a job because they keep getting government checks, right? Uh, and that could be a potential driver for the used car market as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's a case to be made on either side, and I think that, um, you know, we probably just have to be a bit patient and wait for this week to pass for a lot of the news. And like, like, like Nick mentioned, you know, um, I think the market's going to be very, very focused on just the word use. You know, on the on the uh, Fed statement, which words have they taken out? Which words have they added? Because um, generally, not a lot changes, right? Um, but yeah, I guess we'll see. I want to I want to bring the conversation a bit closer to home. I saw um, Devin, you actually pointed it out. Uh, uh, an article by Treasury One, or some some sort of a opinion piece, I guess, by Andre Boerta, uh, who's a dealer at Treasury One, um, talking about rand expectations from various banks. Um, and sort of the outlook or forecast for the RAND. So a number of different banks have, uh, you know, have been sort of polled here. Standard Bank uh, forecasting June 2021, uh, the RAND sort of somewhere around 1425, which is a bit higher than what we are now. Nedbank are looking at 1450. JP Morgan are in line with Standard Bank at 1425. ABSA is a bit more bullish. They're around 1375, as well as Goldman Sachs uh, at 1375. How much of this do you agree with? What do you think are the main drivers here? Yeah, look, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting research, but I mean, so you, you know, if you if you want a divergence of opinion, just just ask anyone where where they think a currency is going. Uh, the rand, particular, is notoriously volatile, and you're going to get very wide widespread on that. I, I think what for me was interesting is um, where these houses see the rand strength coming from. So, you know, Nedbank, as an example there, they, they see, they see um, the RAND moving against the, you know, the, the dollar index, whereas Goldman is, is kind of dollar bears, and they're attributing RAND strength to that. I think the RAND bar last week, which had a pretty torrid, torrid week, has been, the, you know, probably the top performing currency globally over the, over the last year. And I think we've got some really big tailwinds pushing that. You know, you've got this commodity demand coming through. You've got the handful for yield in our nominal bond space. You've got arguably value in the, in the equity market. So, you know, I, I think that the momentum is firmly um, on the RAND side. And, you know, what's, what you're seeing is the revisions of these forecasts is that, that the RAND could go stronger in the short term. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. I guess we we shall see. I'm in the sort of dollar uh, dollar weakness camp is probably the primary driver, uh, thanks to you know big money printers running 24/7 in the basement. Uh, <laughs> to uh, uh, to sort of stay with the with the home based focus. Um, there's an interesting sort of article. Well, I guess there's a series of articles really around it. Um, South African government recently did a couple of things that were not only surprising, but also very, very good. One, 51% of uh, SAA is suddenly in the hands of a con private consortium. Uh, so that's effectively privatized. And um, there's also been some changes around what small businesses can do in terms of uh, power generation. Small businesses can now generate 100 megawatts of their own power uh, without needing licenses or anything like that to make them sort of power independent of ESCOM. This is fantastic news. Devin, I don't know, I'm gonna let you lead what thoughts you might have around this. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that 
Yeah, sure. I mean, and, and I think so. So I think the messaging here is important. I think the um, the embedded generation announcement, and it's actually not really small. I mean, 100 megawatts can, can power a small, small city. It's something like over half a million households. What what that does is just, just introduce these structural reforms that we've literally been begging for. The fact that they've taken so long... Um, to to be introduced is is another is another gripe for another day, but they're here. So what that means is the the floodgates in terms of investment into the renewable space, the you know the the associated jobs that that will create, the energy liberalisation is massive, and I don't even think we fully realise what the impact of this will it's be. It's a gold rush. <laughs> it, it, it has to be. I mean, there, there are projects within the next 18 months that will bring on 5,000 megawatts, which, which will pretty much take up the slack from ESCOM. And I think what you're going to see is a much clearer glide path for investment in the energy space, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah, I'm going to be chatting to someone uh, a little later about um, sort of a new green energy investment bank. Um, that's probably, you know, maybe a good source of, maybe a good phone number to have if you're a small business and you want to put up a 100 megawatt power station. Well, I guess not a small business. It's uh, how, many, how many homes did you say? Half a million homes. Um, yes, about half a million homes. Do you know if, this, if these companies, I mean, if I put up generation, am I allowed to sell that back into the grid or is it just for private, cons- well, you know, consumption of the business? Yeah, no, you'll be able to wheel it back into the grid. That's what we're waiting for in the next kind of 60 days is for clarity on how that could work. But that's incredibly important. Um, you're going to see municipalities start to do that. And and I, I think or, although this will decrease revenues for ESCOM, it'll allow them to, to play in the distribution and the transmission space, which, which is arguably their competitive advantage compared to generation. So I, I think it's, it's massively progressive. Um, and, and I think it's going to be a space that it's, as soon as kind of it's, it's legislated, which we're not there yet, um, you, you're going to be see some very fascinating private sector innovation come into it. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Um, it seems, and pardon the pun, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and in this <laughs> and case, it's, not, it's, a train, it's yeah. not a candle. Yeah, It's not a candle <laughs> or a train. It's actually a light bulb. It's amazing. Um, all right. And then uh, uh, for you, Nick, um, mm. Talking about the G7, right, that's happening, I think this is yeah. something that we should maybe touch on a little bit. Um, interesting, President Joe Biden has challenged the leaders of G7 countries uh, to use their sort of influence and muscle um, to counter China's rising global influence. Um, where He went as far as to say that they are in contest with autocrats. <laughs> Can you unpack this for us a little bit? Maybe just explain what's happening. Yeah, I just we thought it was safe to look at China. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's basically there's this continuing debate about China and the influence um, of what they have in the, in the security surveillance, uh, the influence they have in the tech space worldwide. And of course, you've seen this is obviously a little bit of a leftover from uh, Mr. Trump's presidency uh, when you try to introduce those the sanctions on China. I mean that's been running now for a couple of years. Uh, those who thought um, Mr. Biden was going to come in and be I guess a little bit, uh, a little bit more favourable to China. They've been sorely mistaken. He seems to have left off, well, basically taken up exactly where Mr. Trump left off. So he was sitting in uh, in Cornwall this weekend, uh, chatting to the G7, and he gave quite a forceful presentation and, and a pitch on on how they need to basically. Uh, he said, uh, I'm trying to find the word, something about do not antagonise sort of Beijing. 
but uh, we must certainly put the squeeze on and, and, and you know, basically prevent Chinese rising global influence and especially in, in democracy. So quite a hard-hitting speech. So I'm not quite sure where he's going with this. Uh, of course, this is obviously the preempt. They're now sitting at NATO. NATO, again, I've been looking at my wise always speaking, you know, coming across Reuters, also some more hard-hitting notes, sort of anti-China. So you, know, you must realize this is a, a global superpower that's, probably going to be the largest in, in, in our lifetime coming through and I guess there's a little bit of nerves going around but yeah it doesn't, it doesn't help but uh, they're certainly looking at continuing where uh, those Chinese sanctions with, with Trump have carried on and, and I'd be a little bit nervous this is this to me that she's always been the um, I guess a little bit of tail risk or the outside risk to markets is they're going to go after this Chinese tech space so I'm going to need to be cautious going forward yeah look I mean I remember over 10 years ago now uh, there was all this talk of Chimerica, right? How mm. the two are intricately linked and how, uh, you know, given time, China will become the next superpower and will, will sort of um, dethrone the U.S., I guess, for, uh, you know, the world economic super player, right? Mm. Um, and it seems to me, at least, that this is actually happening, starting to happen. It took 10 years, right? But um, it's starting to happen and I think the Western powers are starting to, you know, they're starting to realize, well, we need to do something about this or we're going we're gonna to fall behind. The question is, can, is there anything they really can do? Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, not at, not at first glance, no. We look, look closer to home. I mean, look at the influence of, um, of China just on the African continent over the last couple of years. You know, their, their road and belt initiative, which they're pushing right through to the top. Um, they're very, I mean, I spoke to, to a colleague this morning who heads up our Mauritius office at Sunam, uh, saying he'd just come back from Kenya and um, on a road trip uh, that he was allowed to sort of go to certain cities and uh, Chinese influence everywhere. They just built a massive new railway uh, station on the outside of Mombasa, um, obviously on the, up the Indian Ocean side facing, facing east. So very, very much involved. So... Chinese influence, can you stop it? I'm not sure. Um, at some point they are going to be. But look, let's not forget, the Chinese government are still a, still a communist country. Uh, people forget. That's true. You know, try to search Google next time you're sitting in Beijing. It's not you know, everything happen. you do, it's not going to happen. So people forget as much as they produce more billionaires in the last couple of years than anyone else. You know, they are displaying certain uh, sides of capitalism. They're still very much a communist state, so yeah. uh, I, I guess caution is warranted once again. Yeah. Okay. So, question for both of you: We've got about a minute left. Um, do we take Chinese exposure in portfolios? <laughs> and if so, how much? I'll let Devon go first, and then Nick can finish. Yeah. Sure. I mean, the, the how much is probably quite subjective. I, I think the short answer is yes, and um, you, you've got to be very wary in that. It's a not a perfect market to take exposure into. But to Nick's point, if you see the, the technology players coming out of there and you see the scale that they're able to, to achieve domestically without even moving outside of their borders, I, I think you've got a massive economic force that will continue to, to compete and will probably, you know, in years to come, maybe even dominate some sectors. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I did, yeah, ditto that. Yes, you do have to have uh, Chinese tech exposure. Um, and again, I'll just to echo what uh, what Devin said. You probably don't want to fill your boots and buy everything that's going. But, uh, but you yeah, can have a few percent in it, yeah. Definitely, without a doubt, you have to. All right, okay. Three for three, we're all agreed. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much for, um, for your time this evening. Um, I hope you have a wonderful evening. That was... Uh, Nick Kunze, Portfolio Manager at Sunam Private Wealth and Devon Schutter, the Head of Investments at Robert Group.